Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It is Saturday. Yeah, that's right. I'm working on a Saturday. But the offer was too good, and you'll see why in a minute. December the 18th, the year of our Lord, 2021. I'm Raheem Kassam, Editor-in-Chief of the National Pulse, broadcasting from a miserable Capitol Hill right now. Gloomy, dreary, and of course, everything else the same as well making it miserable here in Washington, D.C. But I got to tell you, I'm excited about our guest today. Not least because I was, I spent the morning. I know the regular listeners of this podcast know that Natalie and I, we like to listen to things on two times, sometimes even three times speed. I'm actually not up to three times speed yet. But I was listening this morning to Shari Markson's excellent book. And if you don't have it yet, what really happened in Wuhan is just such an extraordinary telling of the events that a lot of the media, most of the media, don't want to have to grapple with. I understand CNN's grappling with a few other things right now, but Shari nails it. And I think it's a must read for everybody. And as I was going through the book this morning, I thought, wow, if only every person in the Western world can be exposed in some way to what Shari talks about in this book, especially as it pertains to what China did right at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, then I think we would all be a little bit better off. And somebody else who really truly understands that is our guest today, I hope will be the congressman for Washington's 3rd Congressional District. Joe Kent joins us. Joe, thank you so much for uh, for making time this Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. Joe, I don't know if you've read um, Shari Markson's book, What Really Happened in Wuhan. I'm only about two-thirds of the way through it right now, but it's it's an epic telling from real sources a lot of named sources, people who wanted to put their names to these things about what happened early on, well, late on in 2019, early on in 2020, and the um, corruption, really, uh, between the World Health Organization, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and unfortunately, of course, many people in my country, the United Kingdom, your country, the United States, in Australia, uh, Shari Markson's country, and, and elsewhere. Have you, have you had a chance to get into that? I have I have the book ordered. Um, I don't have it yet. I've, but I've heard her interviews, obviously on uh, on War Room, and followed her for for quite a while. So it's uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into it. But I think there's so much evidence that's been laid out now about the origins of the virus and everything that the Western governments, in particular the United States, did with Fauci to really cover up the origins. I mean, I think we're at an inflection point right now where we we have the information. More of it obviously needs to come out, but we we've got to find a way to take action. And, and to that end, you wrote this amazing article. I'm very grateful for it, by the way. Flattered uh, that, that, that we could publish it at the National Pulse. Um, it's time for reparations for China's COVID-19 carnage. And you lay out the case in a very, if you don't mind me saying it, a very Navarro-esque way, very forceful way uh, about why, uh, you know, we don't right now just need to be talking about the culpability of the people on our own shores, 
but also actually holding the Chinese Communist Party to account. And as I was listening um, to, to Shari's book uh, this morning, going back through a lot of the details, going back to... I won't ruin it for you in totality, because actually, for, for as grim a subject matter as it is... Um, it's you know I'll use the word enjoyable, but it's it's enjoyable in the sense that you learn so much uh, over over such a short period of time in that book, and uh, you know I think you get it in this article you nail it. So let me ask you this, right? We talk about reparations, we talk about uh, China's culpability here, but one of the things that became abundantly clear to me very early on in the pandemic, and Cherry makes a very good case for it in her book. Um, is that there are just so many interests, right? There are so many interests whose oh, yeah. worlds would be shattered apart, whether it's the pharmaceutical companies, whether it's the World Health Organization. So let me, let's start with a point of realism. How realistic is it to be able to hold China to account um, when you've got so many interests in our own countries who are pushing back against that? Yeah, I mean, I, I understand the the realistic, or you know, the way you frame it. How realistic is this? I mean, I, I would kind of flip it and say, how realistic is it that we can continue to survive like this, being so intertwined with the Chinese Communist Party, where they're they're exploiting us to such a great extent? How long can our country survive? Like, if we don't take action now, I, I think that we are going to look back on this, and we're not going to have much of a, a country left. I mean, between the way they took advantage of COVID. The way they're deeply intertwined, you know, at every level with Wall Street and the Beltway. If we don't start this fight now, it's probably going to be too late. I think we still have a lot of things going in our favor, but we're going to have to start fighting the Chinese Communist Party. And really, I think that first fight, I mean, we, we talk about fighting the Chinese Communist Party, but what that really looks like, I think, is fighting our elite right here at home first. We talk a lot about that, right? The elite and and the elite, ca- the idea of elite capture um, we like to talk it more or talk about it more in in, in terms of elite merger, right? There were these two um, oligarchies um, on different sides of the world that realized, hey, you know, if we all work together, then ordinary people aren't going to be able to assail us. So, in your mind, where does where does that where does that assault begin? How do we start that process of um, holding both um, you know both sets of elites to account? I think the COVID reparations is a good spot because I think your average American who's not deeply following, you know, the news or the larger issues, they probably wouldn't. I mean, a couple of years ago, they probably really wouldn't understand how intertwined we are with China. I do think people are waking up to it now. But COVID, regardless of how people have been affected, it is, you know, wreak, wreak havoc, on, havoc on our country, especially the economy. People's lives have been upended. Pretty much everyone has. So I, I think starting with COVID and the amount of lies that our own bureaucracy has told us, you know, and we've had the largest transfer of wealth from small independent businesses all the way up to the, the corporate structure, the largest one we've ever had in the history of our country. So I think starting with a congressional uh, committee that really lays out what the government knew when they knew it, what China knew, and then pull no punches. I mean, guys like Fauci, he's been trying to cover his tracks now for you know last two years or so. We, we've got him pretty much dead to rights, lying to Congress, lying to, to Senator Rand Paul under oath. So I, I think that's a good starting point. And then we need to look at the totality of just how intertwined we are and, and kind of make that a larger economic trade issue because every advantage that China has over us, it kind of goes back to, hey, these guys really, they, they control our supply lines. We rely on them to buy up our debt bonds to keep our currency afloat. It's just, it's such a huge problem. But I, I would use 
what actually happened to, to borrow the, the title of the book, what actually happened in Wuhan and what did our government, especially Fauci and the NIH, what did they know and when did they know it? Let's get to the bottom of that and lay that out for the American people. Why is it, do you think, and, and you know, this is something that bothers me almost more on a day-to-day basis than, than the actions of the CCP or the actions of Fauci, because, you know, we know that those people are necessarily hostile. They're hostile to, you know, if, if you're if you're Anthony Fauci, you're hostile to the idea of basic basic liberties. I think, as as, as Americans know them, uh, if you're the Chinese Communist Party, you're you're allergic almost in your in your policy prescriptions to um, to uh, free markets, to free peoples, to um, you know the idea of 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 what America has stood for for so very long. But what really really gets my goat up is is why Republicans, you mentioned Rand Paul there, but unfortunately you can only count them on one hand, the number of Republicans here on Capitol Hill that are willing um, to really not just go up against Fauci in a, in a committee, that's the easy part, but to deal with all the media fallout and all you know everything else on the back end of that, why is that and, and how, how do you see that uh, from, from your post up there in Washington State? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, there there's very few Republicans that are actually going to call this out and then not just push back against Fauci at a, at a bigger picture, but then push back on all the petty tyranny. I mean, here in Washington state, we have a governor who is he's, he's locked our economy down. He forced the statewide vaccine mandates that uh, cost people their jobs. Like it, It's up in people's faces. And there's very few, there's a handful, but there's a very few Republicans that are calling that out and going after it. The woman I'm going against, Jamie Herbert Butler, Trump impeachment voter, Rhino, she takes money from Johnson's and Johnson. She's actually praised the actions of, of Jay Inslee, our governor. So I, I think really it gets to the core. And I think some of it, maybe it's complex if you get into the financial industry and, and how lobbyists work and all that. I think that's definitely a play. I don't want to discount that. But really, there is the, the simple Trump derangement syndrome. Donald Trump really made his name by calling out, you know, our imbalance in trade, really pointed out to the American people how the crisis that we have right now with the Chinese Communist Party and how they're using uh, currency manipulation and intellectual property theft. And he changed that entire narrative and that the whole corporate structure of the lobbyists, the donors, the press, they rejected that and they really rejected it because he was right. When he started to bring back some of the manufacturing, we had the largest you know, raise in working class wages that we had seen um, in, in decades. And so a lot of this, and especially the way that Trump at the early phases of the pandemic, he started calling out, hey, this is China. We need to have a travel ban against China. And then immediately the most you know, typical response from the left is that this is some sort of a, you know, this is racism, this is nationalism, this is xenophobia. All of that, I think, is just, becomes so such a, a blunt tool that Republicans are scared of. And I, I don't know why they're scared of it because we know they're going to use it every single time. But I, I think that that's still, that's still out there. Um, and Republicans have been you know very hesitant to call this out for what it is, just an authoritarian power grab. And you write, um, you write in your article, and I, I commend this to everybody, not just because it means more people will click onto the nationalpulse.com. That's always a good thing. Um, but uh, it's detailed, right? This isn't just rhetoric. What you're talking about is, is actual things that can be done. And, of course, one of the things that you mention is, is, is effectively you know, crippling sanctions on businesses that continue to freely work with the Chinese Communist Party against the interests of the United States. I think about that and that kind of that paragraph of your article, and it brings to mind um, Hamilton's report on the subject of manufacturers, right from 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 seventeen ninety one. Because you know, I think being a Brit, um, 
a lot of Americans will, you know, we will joss each other about the revolution. And, and But then when we get into actual discussions about it, there's a very surface level learning that's gone on in this country about your revolution. There's absolutely no learning, by the way, about that period of time in my country, funnily enough. <laughs> we just kind of, we like to bury that one, um, not, re- not remember it too well. Um, but I always like to say that, you know, the, the revolution, the, the Declaration of Independence wasn't the period of time in and of itself when America really became a functioning nation. It, it took some time, and it really actually took until after 1812 for America to assert itself as an independent nation. But one of the things that was um, pivotal toward that was Hamilton's, Hamilton's report on the subject of manufacture, 1791, effectively Treasury Secretary Hamilton said at the time, you know, you can't have a functioning nation without your own manufacturing base at home. You will always, therefore, be reliant upon a foreign power. A foreign power might always turn hostile on you. And that's kind of the same thing as we're seeing now, where, you know, in the years after the, you know, all the craze about the Hamilton musical and all this stuff, we fail to remember the one thing that I actually think was, was the most pertinent part of nation building at home that Hamilton offered, which is, hey, you actually need to make stuff for yourself. You cannot be reliant on hostile powers. And so talk to us a little bit about, you know, the part in your article where you talk about bringing manufacturing home, bringing, um, you know, reliance on China, reliance on anybody, quite frankly, um, to heal. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I think we have to get on uh, a wartime footing with because right now, America, like we, Donald Trump said it very, very simply and plainly during the 2016 campaign, we don't make anything anymore. And that, that sort of sounds like a bumper sticker, but when you, you dig into it, it's like we actually don't make anything here really anymore. We rely on the Chinese Communist Party to, to be the world's manufacturer, and we, we are deeply intertwined with them. We saw what happened with the pandemic. We couldn't make basic PPE. We couldn't make... Um, vitamins. We couldn't make any kind of medical um, supplies that we needed. So this is this is a crisis. We don't make anything. But also, what that did was that uh, outsourced all of our labor, and it made it very impo- very difficult for someone to simply leave high school and be able to get a decent paying job. They had that's when we started this whole hollowing out of our economy. Not only do we not make anything anymore, but there's no upward mobility for the vast majority of people in the country. There's there's only so many different college degrees that you can get and get you know, white collar office work. Um, and that's the myth that we sold people basically from, you know, the late seventies into the eighties and, and up until now that there's no, there's no more decent uh, blue collar jobs available. And that's really hollowed out the, the base of our country had a catastrophic effect on all these small towns. Uh, opioid addiction comes in, lack of purpose, families start breaking up. So it's had this huge social ramification that I think we should be deeply concerned about just for the health of our own people. But then from a national security perspective, I mean, Hamilton was a genius. Like he, he knew that there was no way that we could have to rely on another country. And it's not like the CCP is Canada and we share some sort of cultural bonds with them. Like this, this, this couldn't be a more you know, different country than us. And there's an ocean in between us. So there's all these logistics issues. But really the way that we have the globalist plan to say that, hey, we'll overlook the fact that China is willing to use slave labor, that they're willing to use child labor. We'll overlook that because we're going to get cheap goods here. You know, consequences be damned. This is going to be a net positive for the American people. Well, that was all a lie. We had the catastrophic consequences on the working class. And then now we have this issue where the Chinese Communist Party controls all of our means of production. So I think we have to get extremely aggressive about it. And this is this is where I think I, I part ways of a lot of traditional Republicans who say that you can't ever interfere with the sacred free market. I think this is where we actually have to have the government come in and say, hey, if you want to produce anything 
that's going to be sold in this country, you need to make it in this country with American hands. Otherwise, we will simply tariff you into non-existence. I'm, I'm, I'm good with using the tools of the government to offer some of these manufacturing companies, you know, free land, very lucrative tax incentives to bring back their manufacturing. I think we should be rewarding com- companies and corporations if they're willing to be patriotic and view this as a wartime effort, the way our country rallied around the flag and switched over industries in the Second World War. Um, but the companies that want to play cute with us and try and keep their means of production elsewhere, I think we just tariff them into non-existence. And this is something we just have to take very seriously. It's an incredibly, it's an incredibly bold fight to, to you know, proclaim the standard of, given the, given the scale of the, you know, the animus towards an idea like that. I mean, you're talking about taking on all of the vested interests in the media class, all of the vested interests in the hospitality industry, all of the vested interests, you know, quite frankly, in whatever's left of a lot of the manufacturing industries in America, because they deal so much with Chinese companies to, you know, bring parts in. And and maybe, you know, you see those signs. I I remember seeing signs growing up when I was visiting America that said, made in America, right? And now you see signs that say, assembled in america and it's like i know what you're yep. doing you know i know you know you're not fooling <laughs> yeah. anybody with this um but it's it's such a it's such a large um undertaking and it's an undertaking whereby you know joe they'll they will demonize you to the hilt they they will stop at oh, yeah. nothing uh to make you look like the boogeyman in that whole thing are you telling me that you know to put it to put it bluntly um, that Republicans can—I won't even say Republicans, frankly, because I, I have no affinity. I, I don't feel anything about the Republican Party. Um, but conservatives or people who care about this country, patriots—are you telling me that they just need to kind of grow a pair? I mean, yeah. To put it very simply, I mean that's it. That's the bottom line. And, and then, really, just—I I would encourage people to, to do the do the math and the critical thinking. Like, if things continue this way. Where do you see our country on, on every level? If we continue to hollow out our manufacturing base and it's impossible for young people to get a decent manufacturing job, what, what does that leave them with? What, what has COVID shown us that the government's willing to do? Well, they're willing to lock us down, take away our jobs, and then just send people money. So then we're on our way to becoming some form of a, whatever you want to call it, communism. I think it's total, total control authoritarianism is the direction that we're heading. But then also China, we, I mean, who has a question nowadays other than maybe Joe Biden? Does China have the best interests at store for the American people? They, they don't. And we give them this power of controlling our manufacturing. What, look, look at what they did best case scenario with COVID. They didn't give us a heads up when they had a lab leak. I believe it's much more nefarious than that. Mm. But, and we rely on them. We, we continue to run up our national debt, but we rely on them to buy up our debt bonds. Like this is not sustainable. And I have a background in the military and you just can't let problems fester in the military. At some point, you're going to have to go and fight. And for me right now, we still have somewhat of an advantage just because of the juggernaut of, of uh, an economic power that our country is for the time being. And if we don't fight right now, we're going to lose the ability to ever push back. It is it is waning, isn't it? I mean, you can see the ability yeah. to fight back waning in front of our eyes, and you just think, when when is this country going to understand? You know, I sit here. I'm 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 in Washington D.C. I'm in my in my house on Capitol Hill, and I in front of me I have a map of the British Empire at its peak. Right? It was glorious, <laughs> as, oh, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Um, and and you look at that now, and you think, wow, how did it all disappear so quickly? And it was it was the it was very much the same thing, right? We hollowed out our own nation. We hollowed 
slowed out, ex- you know, exported all of the jobs, thought we could import everything, thought, hey, you know, we're friends, we plant our flag all around the world and therefore the world will be friends of ours. And it just didn't work out like that. And I think, I think a lot of Americans are starting to feel that way too. That America has planted its flag in so many places all across the world, whether it has been, you know, uh, via uh, conflict, via... Um, you know, frankly, bribery in some cases. I mean, there hasn't really been a very serious American foreign policy. Um, well, I might say ever, but but the for, the foreign policy class in Washington D.C. doesn't seem to, didn't seem to understand because I don't think they're very bright. Frankly, I mean, I, I talk to these people all the time, and if you're listening, um, I don't think you're very bright. Um, you know, to to the people on K Street and and all of those guys, uh, but also they just don't care. Their pockets aren't lined by yeah. Americans getting more wealthy. No, that's, that's exactly right. And, and I mean, to your point, our foreign policy class, the national security blob or whatever you want to call them, they, they really are just looking for the next foreign adventure to get us into. And they're not worried about these large systemic issues. They're not really, it's crazy that we call them, you know, the national security state. <laughs> our national security is the last thing they're worried about. That's they're, so they're true. Worried about finding, yeah, they're worried about finding another place to send foreign aid because that's the easiest way to recycle money back to the beltway or even better, if you can start a new war and you can get everybody freaked out about the Russians and Ukraine and you can you know, threaten nuclear war. These are the adults in the room that we were told were, were so smart. They can threaten nuclear war, potentially get us into another war. And what does any of that have to do with securing our country? If they really wanted, if they really cared about securing our country, they'd be talking about what we're discussing right now, our manufacturing base and what's going on with relying on the CCP to buy up our debt bonds. It's just... It's, it's really quite a joke, and I, and I think we just have to have people that don't want to genuflect to these so-called experts anymore, but call them out for, for exactly what they are. They're just selfish, silly, and sometimes seditious people. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. And what I what I like especially about that is the national security point. They're not they're not the national security apparatus. They're the international insecurity apparatus. Exactly. Yeah. Everything these people have done around the world has not just made America less safe, less secure, and less self reliant, but has also made the world uh, less secure. And and it, it, that is such a great point that I'm writing it down right now. Joe, I want to ask you something. And, and ladies and gentlemen, our um, our guest is Joe Kent, uh, running for um, Congress in Washington's third congressional district. Joe, what is your website, by the way, so people can go there? Yeah, JoeKentForCongress.com. JoeKentForCongress.com. We'll put it in the description on the um, on the podcast as well, and make sure we. I'll uh, I'll talk about it at the end of this podcast as well. I want to take you back to something you just said, which uh, I glossed over a little bit, but I think requires some more unpacking, and that is the leak, right? The leak of this virus. I think most yeah. serious people nowadays don't think that somebody had a, a, a badly made soup um, and, right. and then the world got sick. Uh, I think all evidence points to some far more nefarious activities. And indeed, the Chinese dissidents in Washington, D.C., who have been here for a very long time, back in November of 2019, were talking about this. And we're talking about the PLA and the PLA's application of um, bioweapons projects taking place in that uh, BSL-4 lab in Wuhan and how just, you know, what a wild coincidence uh, that the, the, the place that this originated was where they had this, this, this uh, lab. So let me ask you that question. Is you talk, we talk about the, the lab leak theory. Do, does any part of you think perhaps that, that, that we're talking about intent behind COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, it's always, I mean, with my background in Intel, proving intent is very difficult. But I I mean, if you look at, if you look at 
there's a weapons bio weapons lab there. We now know, thanks to the work that, that you guys did, National Pulse and some others, that you know we, we funded gain of function research. This is exactly what they were doing there. They were working on, you know, COVID biological weapons essentially, and they had had leaks before. I mean, we have the State Department cables. You guys found the State Department cables that said like, hey, these guys occasionally leak out. Um, viruses because they don't have the best procedures there. But what I think we can prove, like, do we know exactly on the day that COVID-19 jumped out of that lab? Was it, you know, was it the PLA saying, okay, on this date, release it, let's see what happens? Or was it, oh no, we have a leak? Well, I, what we do know is what happened next. Now, had the Chinese Communist Party been this great global organization that just wants to cooperate and research, you know, the, the globalist fantasy that we get told by all, again, the adults in the room and the Davos crowd, if they were that, if that was how they acted, they would have told us. They would have said, hey, uh, that gain of function thing that we're all paying for, we just, we just had a leak, we're locking things down. Like there would have been steps taken, but we now know that this started back in the fall of 19 when all of us were completely oblivious to it. Um, and so that's what I think we can prove. We can prove that, hey, maybe, we, I don't know if we'll ever know. I'd like to do the research and, and f- figure out if we can can get to the bottom of whether they intended for it to leak out at that time. But once it was out, the Chinese Communist Party's intent was to fully exploit it. And they didn't share any information. They continued to send people all over the world to buy a PPE. They sent people all over the world to spread the virus. You know, and then they had our elites. Fauci was absolutely in. He he didn't say anything. He was trying to cover his tracks. And then our media did zero due diligence. The media basically made the lab leak theory this like QAnon conspiracy theory. Mm. That's basically what you were called for about a year if you even brought it up. And now it's now it's out there, and it's like, okay, well, yeah, it it probably did come from the Wuhan lab. But I mean, this is this is something that if you. for me, it always goes, it goes back to the actions they took once that virus jumped out of the lab. That's, that's what, to me, is completely nefarious and says pretty much everything that you need to know about the Chinese Communist Party. I think it's absolutely right. Um, a, a, you know, a really pivotal moment we're living through here. Um, Joe, just before, I, I want to get into you a little bit and, and, and talk about your background and how you came to this moment. Um, but in the, in the article, you mentioned the timber industry. Now, I don't know much about uh, the timber industry. I'll I'll tell a funny story. I was supposed to be, um, I was ordained as, as a minister in order to uh, officiate a marriage between uh, some friends of mine a couple of years ago. And I was so busy at the time that I didn't really pay attention to um, the sleeping arrangements up in Maine where we were staying. So I said to my buddy, Rob, my buddy Rob, I said, hey, you you just figure it all out. Just, you know, get us into a hotel. Tell me where I'm sleeping. I, I'm, I'm just along for the ride here. And um, we get up there. And we pull up to this cabin in the woods. And I said, Rob, what, what, what is this? He says, this is where we're staying. He's from Alabama. I won't try and do the accent. Um, and he says, this is where we're staying. I said, um, does this place have Wi-Fi? He said, no, I don't think so. I said, because um, I'm not getting any cell signal here either. He goes, yeah, no, you won't. I said, Rob, I, I, I run a news website. I, I, I can't just be out of, out of the loop for the next three days. He's like, oh, man, I'm sorry. I didn't even think of it. Anyway, so we have, we have to settle in, and we quickly realize that it's, it's, it's winter, and there's no heating in this place, and uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a little um, little fireplace inside. And I said to him, well, uh, do you know how to build a fire? He said, no. I said, well, I don't know how to build a fire. And we can't get on YouTube right now either to learn how to build a fire. So we're just going to have to like 
figure out how to build a fire. And um, we went outside. There was an axe by the door, so I took this axe. And and you got to understand, I'm in my I'm in my suit, trousers, a shirt. Uh, you know, I got my laptop under my under my arm. I'm a city boy, okay. In case you didn't realize. And um, we go outside, and there are all these kind of like you know half chopped logs up on, on this tree stump. And I said, well, I guess we have to we have to chop those and then we put them in the thing and then we find a way to light it I'm, i you know i've heard of like kindling i understand the b- b- general <laughs> basics of all of this but he took this picture of me joe which is just me in my in my shirt and and trousers suit trousers i've got a cigarette hanging out of the corner of my mouth and with one arm i'm just like wielding this axe and barely landing any blows on these logs long story <laughs> sh- long story short we, we do get the fire going in the end and by the way i'm not the one who ends up falling asleep in front of the fire i have to you know i, I go to sleep in my bed somebody else gets to enjoy the fire that i built but um i don't know as with that story in mind i don't know much about the timber industry uh, but i but i believe it is emblematic of a lot of the other things that you get at in this article so can you tell us a little bit about why specifically you talk about the timber industry and deregulation around it yeah, so I mean, the timber industry out here in the Pacific Northwest was the beating heart of our economy. I mean, really, up until the 80s, we started to have the environmental movement that really took aim at the timber industry, kind of passed law after law. And again, the, the federal government owns so much of the land in the West that federal regulations that prevent things like logging due to endangered species, we have an endangered species of owl out here that really shut, was used as a reason to shut down a lot of our logging industry out here. And so that happened, well, I wouldn't say gradually, that happened over the course of about, uh, throughout the 80s and the 90s, our timber industry, the ability to actually go out and harvest our own timber was drastically limited due to over-government regulation. But then the double whammy of it, because you know the logging industry was big for young men to go out and be lumberjacks and physically cut down the trees but what actually employed more people was the production of the lumber. So our sawmills uh, employed a lot of folks out here, great manufacturing style jobs. You could get it right out of high school and you could stay there um, really until you retired. This is how people made their livings out here. But a lot of the sawmills, thanks to all the trade deals that we cut throughout the, the 90s and the 2000s, they got shipped out. So we would, we would harvest some timber, a limited amount, of timber here in the Pacific Northwest, but then it would get shipped either up to Canada or some of it over to Japan to be processed and turned into lumber, shipped back here and sold at an exorbitant price. So it, it's kind of like a triple whammy. We killed off the actual people that go out and harvest the timbers. We killed off the, the ability to manufacture it here. And then we drove the price of housing up because now we're importing the exact same timber that we just plucked out of our own forests. And then the, I, I would say that the fourth gut punch is the environmental implication. So since we we're not harvesting the timber, we're not actually going out and logging, we're not building logging roads, we're not clearing out the lumber rush consistently. We've had catastrophic wildfires that I know everyone's familiar with throughout California, throughout Oregon, Washington, uh, summer before last was really bad. I mean, the whole region was really, was literally in flames and fire crews couldn't actually get out to where a lot of these fires were started by lightning or other natural causes because there were no more logging roads. And then the, the forest essentially become this massive, this massive tim, uh, tinderbox because there's so much undergrowth too. So the, the logging industry has just been absolutely decimated. And, and I think it's, it's very similar, like you said, to every other industry. I mean, you could really replace the word timber with coal and, you know, uh, up in uh, Detroit, the automotive industry, the steel industry, 
it's just that same sad story where you drive through towns in the Pacific Northwest that were once thriving that you just can't, if you're born there, if you're from there, you can't get a job there anymore. You know, you, you have to, you're forced to, again, take the college loan debt and then move to the city and, and hope that you can get a job in some other industry. But then so many of those jobs have been taken away by H-1B visas and, and then just the whole gig economy that you can see what's been happening with our economy on a, on a generational scale. And this is something that, you know, a, a lot of the really super smart people like the the Obama, well, you can't bring them back. They'll, they'll say it like it's a, a law of nature. It's like, well, no, this, these were all decisions made by governments and by people. And just like it was done, we can undo this. We can bring this back and have a revival right here with an industry that could make a real difference for people here at home. Well, you remind me of the, you know, the um, big thing that Obama was talking about on the run-up to the 2016 election. He's saying, oh, you know, Trump's saying all these things about the economy and how he's going to get the economy going, but there's no magic wand, right? There's no magic wand. And then suddenly yeah. when, when there was a magic wand, which was just, you know, common sense economic policy, um, everybody in the media started going, oh, well, of course, this is Obama's work that's really starting to bear fruit now. Well, hold on. I thought he yeah. said that there was no ability to do this. It can't have it both ways. Um, and I think it's a very similar application in this regard. A lot of people want to talk about how it can't be done. I'm very pleased that people like you are talking about how it can be done. Um, yeah. the, the website is joekentforcongress.com. I, I was reading... Um, I guess a couple of weeks ago, there was this letter to the editor of one of the local papers up there in Washington, um, and it was entitled, Why I'm Voting for Joe Kent for Congress. And I'm sure you've seen this. Several of these um, paragraphs really stuck out to me, and I want to give our, our listeners uh, a little bit, a little taste of this. Um, there was a town hall, I guess, that you were doing at Ridgefield uh, in July, and the author of this letter says... Um, well, I'll skip the I'll skip the introduction of it because I want to talk I want to talk to you about that. But it says prior to the town hall, I was nervous and unsure of what to expect. As a recent high school graduate, I was one of the younger individuals at the event. Nonetheless, Joe Kent was happy to take my questions and treated me with respect. He is approachable and genuine person. His campaign speech did not rely on GOP talking points. Republicans understand that socialism is an immoral ideology. Uh, this has been drilled into our heads by the conservative movement for decades. So I was pleasantly surprised when his speech focused on more pressing issues like the unprecedented power of big tech. It goes on, more details, more policy details. Um, and then it says, listen to any of Kent's speeches, and it's clear he does not subscribe to the failed three-legged stool of conservatism, which is military interventionism, crony capitalism, and virtue signaling to social conservatives. If elected, Kent claims he will introduce legislation to withdraw troops from the Middle East. This is one of the main reasons I'll be voting for Joe Kent. I'm tired of Republican leaders romanticizing the founding fathers while failing to heed their warnings about foreign intervention. And I just thought that it was an incredibly well-crafted uh, letter with a lot of uh, you know interesting detail about your, your policy positions and your personal positions. So I wanted just to give our listeners who maybe, and I'm sure most of them have, at least heard of you if they haven't got into the, the nitty-gritty of the details of your, of your platform, but just a little bit about you. you. 20 years in the military, three bronze stars. How, how did all of those things um, get you to where you are now? Yeah, so I mean, uh, as far back as I can remember when I was a kid, I just wanted to join the military and be a, be a commando of some sort. This is, you know, during the 80s and the, and the 90s. Um, and I saw in 1993, we had the, the famous Black Hawk Down incident. Um, I saw that, hey, there was people that for all I knew, they were my next door neighbors that were out there fighting in like hard, savage fights. And I was like, I don't know who these guys are or why they're there, but if America needs people to go do that, I want to go do that. Um, and so I joined the army in 98, went to Ranger Regiment, became a Green Beret shortly after. Attacks 9-11 happened right after that. And I, I felt like I was in 
the best spot ever because I got to be one of the guys that would go and, and you know, avenge this horrible ter- terrorist attack that took place in our country. Um, and I got to do some of that for sure. But I also um, spent a lot of time in Iraq and, I, and I, I went to Iraq as a true believer, you know, believing what pretty much the, the administration said that, hey, there was links between Al Qaeda and Saddam. And if we didn't go take out Saddam right now, that there would be some other terrorist attack that stemmed from Iraq. You know, I was a, I, I really thought that you know, the, the government wouldn't lie about something this serious. But the longer I was there and I spent a lot, I spent pretty much every year of the war. I was there for at least six months, if not longer. And I worked a lot with the Iraqi security forces, standing them up. And I, and I saw really quickly that, hey, uh, the people that were making decisions, they weren't looking for the ground truth. They, there was no actual attempt to get things right. There was a party line that said we needed to continue to commit more and more to this place to build this government. And my question was always like, okay, what happens when we actually, if we can build this government, and the longer I was there, the more skeptical I was of that endeavor. But I was like, even if we did, what would we get out of it? Why aren't we just going after terrorists? I mean, none of it really made sense to me. I thought maybe there was an issue where those in power just weren't getting good ground truth. So I kind of gravitated over to the intelligence side of special operations, worked heavily in that. It became very clear to me that there was a party line from both sides of the, from the, the Bushites. And then I transitioned, you know, we transitioned into the Obama era, where it was literally the prescription was we needed to be everywhere, constantly doing regime change, constantly doing this nation building. And so I uh, was pretty, you know, disenfranchised with both parties. And that was until Trump came on the scene, because the first thing that Trump did was he called all of that out. And he did it right to the, the face of the GOP and said, we got these wars wrong. We were lied to, and we need to get the heck out of them. We have to take out some some problems that have festered since then. Trump was hard on getting rid of ISIS. We had to get rid of ISIS. Um, and so I had the honor of serving under you know all the different presidents before Trump. But then when Trump came in, he gave us the authorities and the uh, resources we needed to take out ISIS, to check the Iranian aggression. But he did it all without getting us into a new war. Uh, my late wife was also in the military, someone I met through service. She was a uh, Arabic linguist and intelligence operator. She was deployed to the final push uh, during the final push to take out the Islamic Caliphate in Syria. She was there when we took out the last city that ISIS controlled. And so President Trump, then when we had done that, when we took out ISIS, we, we took away all the ground they controlled. Trump did something that no other president had done before. He said, hey, I on getting us out of these wars and I'm pulling our troops out of Syria. And that's when the military industrial complex, the national security blob, whatever you want to call it, really turned their knives on President Trump. Secretary of Defense Mattis resigned. Brett McGurk, the special envoy from the State Department, resigned publicly. And they presented the case that Trump was somehow going to, to end the liberal world order by getting us out of a war. And the media jumped on it because they already hated Trump. Um, and the bureaucrats below Trump, or sorry, below Mattis and them, who were not elected by the American people, committed bureaucratic slow roll, left our troops in Syria. And a month later, my wife and three other Americans are killed by a suicide bomber. Um, I was, I had just finished my 20 years in the military, uh, retired on a Friday, signed in, uh, swore in at the CIA on a Monday to be a paramilitary operations officer. Um, I was actually overseas when my wife was killed. So I, as I'm flying back to re- receive her remains, it, you know, I, it occurred to me, we have two young kids and I was like, Hey, I have to retire. I have to get away from, you know, getting shot at for a living essentially just to focus on my sons. Um, I had opportunity to meet president Trump a couple of days later at Dover when my wife's remains were being returned to us. And I figured, Hey, I'm just going to tell, if I get a chance, I'm going to tell Trump or somebody that works for him that he's getting it right, but he's being, he's being undermined. 
at every single level because it was like nothing I had seen before uh, from the from the mid to the senior levels of the DOD and the intelligence community. The way that there was just vitriol and this culture of hey, the president doesn't know what he's doing, but we're really in charge, which is completely against our system. Um, and so I was like, I'm, I'm going to tell him that if I get a chance. And, and I did. I got a chance to meet President Trump. He's incredibly caring, incredibly gracious. It was a, obviously a very emotional moment. Um, but I got the opportunity and I figured, hey, I'm resigning from the CIA next week. Who cares? This, but I'm going to tell him. And I told him, hey, you're getting undermined at every level. I didn't think much would come from it. But Trump's an unconventional guy. And once he, he kind of learned, he asked me what my background was. And I said, well, my background is fighting these wars for my entire adult life. And uh, he, he kind of dug into my background a little bit and then put me in touch with some folks on his inner inner circle and on the, on the national security side. So I did some, I think, just unofficial advisory work uh, for the Trump team on foreign policy, especially terrorism. And then as I was moving, I was moving back here to the Pacific Northwest to get my two sons closer to my family. Um, 2020 happened, the, the COVID lockdowns happened, massive riots on the streets of my hometown, Portland, Oregon, uh, close to the district I live in now. Antifa even came into our district. And really the way that the left weaponized Antifa and BLM was like nothing I had seen in America, but exactly what I had seen fighting overseas. You have these political movements, they have their political wing, they put out their messaging, but then they have their foot soldiers that go out and use violence as a tool to, to get a political ends. And that's exactly what I saw with Antifa. And I saw the way that Antifa was using the propaganda to really get a lot of passive support, either through intimidation or through ideological support from the population to make the violence continue to, to create this chaotic scene in 2020 leading up to the election. So I actually had an offer to go back and work in a second Trump administration on the national security side. And then, then the election happened and we all know how that went. I mean, again, watching the machinery of unelected bureaucrats, big tech, the media move against Trump. And then the woman I voted for, who I'm running against now, Jamie Herrera Butler, who's a Republican, I, I thought for sure that she was going to be one one of the ones, just due to how much pressure there was from from the district. I thought she was going to be one of the ones to reject the uh, the election the electors on January sixth, and she came out pretty early and said that she was not going to do that, and that she completely disagreed with us that there was any kind of discrepancies. Um, and then the, the riot on the sixth happened, and then without any kind of due process, any laying out of the timeline, Jamie Herrera Butler votes for the impeachment of President Trump. And so for me, I was like, okay. I see exactly what's going on here. We're on the cusp of losing our country. Uh, we literally live between two Antifa-controlled cities, Portland and Seattle, essentially. And now the election has just been stolen. And the woman who's supposed to defend us, this Republican who's supposed to defend us, is going along with it. So I, I basically called a couple people I knew from the Trump realm and said, hey, I'm going to go for this. And then I had to Google, how do you run for Congress to figure <laughs> out how to do an FEC report? And that's, that's pretty much ever since then been, been off to the races. Amazing. And it's been and it's been amazing to watch it all happen as well. Um, Joe, I won't keep you too much longer, but I, I do want to ask you just um, a, a personal question, if I might, because this sure. and, and, you know, you don't need to if you don't feel comfortable talking about it, feel free to brush me off. But, you know, I've I've, I've not served in the military, I've certainly not served in the military for, for 20 years. Um, you, you clearly got a grasp of um, all of the inconsistencies, uh, the lies, the poor poor strategies, poor tactics, um, and you saw it all along the way. Now, looking back at that, looking back at the last, you know, 22 years, um, how personally do you deal with that? You know, knowing that you were, you, like you said, you were being shot at for this for this cause. You know, you, you, you lost your 
wife as a result of you know the grander strategy that was being deployed uh, by you know these these what we you know what we dub now the international insecurity uh, blob. Um, how do you how do you process like on a human level? How do you process something like that? Is is it a daily thing? Is it yeah? How do you um, how do you get up every morning and say I just got to keep my eyes on the target ahead and not look back all the time and think wow how did I not see it back then? Yeah, you know, honestly, I, I really wish, and I, I, I've said this a couple of times, I, I really wish that I could come back and be a true believer, um, like like some people you hear. I wish I could come back and say, hey, these wars we fought, they were worth it. We got this tangible thing for our country. I wish there was some great victory we had, like our grandfathers did at the end of the Second World War. But really, for me, it's provided clarity. I mean, there's as bad as truth can be sometimes, lies are much worse. So to still believe that, the global war on terror was just that. And it was this, this, uh, this war that we had to fight, you know, all over the place, toppling regimes. That's a lie. And, and to live under the pretense that like, we have to fight them over there. So we don't fight them over here. And all this other rhetoric that you hear that continues to make us make the same decisions, get us in the same messes and exacerbate them even more and cost us more lives and more trillions of dollars to, to, I, to still live under that premise, I think would be a horrible and tragic thing. So I, I do like the fact that, hey, I, I've, I've seen this, I've experienced it, and I want to be able to continue to, to drive forward to get our country back on track. And what I tell a lot of veterans that, that are having a hard time with this, and a lot of us are, I, and there's times where, especially as we were pulling out of Afghanistan, I mean, I was furious. Um, I was furious that there was no accountability. All of it was finally coming unraveled, but I was mad. And a lot of guys were, were some, somewhere between enraged and very depressed. And what I say is, I say, hey, the physical war that we went and we fought, we answered our nation's call because we love this country. We know what it represents. That's why we showed up in the first place. What the government did with us afterwards, that's on them. But right now, our fight's not over. We, we can't just come back and say, okay, well, it was all it was all a lie, and now I'm going to be bitter about it. Like I don't think we have that luxury right now. Like we were on the cusp of losing our country, and so if we we have a choice to make, we can continue to drive forward, knowing the truth that we know, or we can really just give in. And I, I, I for because I have kids, I, that's not an option for me because I have two young sons. They lost their mom when they were really young, and someday they're going to look at me and say, "Hey." What was it all about? Like, why, why did she get killed? And I obviously, when they're old enough, I'll tell them all the details um, of how everything went. But I do want to be able to say, hey, guys, at the end of the day, our country is the greatest country in the history of the world. The, the West is the, the only hope for humanity. And I truly believe that. And so that's just what we have to continue to drive forward to. So I, I look at the physical war that I fought uh, before as really just one battle. And we're still in this massive campaign to take our country back from the global elite and then from everything the left wants to do to not just us, but the entire Western civilization. So for, for me, it's, you know, just, it is continue to drive forward and don't let them win. Cause if we just, if we slip into despair, then that's exactly what they want. I feel like that's one of the left's big plans right now is to have, at least half of us just slip into despair because then they, they don't really even need to lock us down again with COVID. They don't even need to steal elections. If half of us just stop participating because we were so full of despair, then they win. So I can't give them that. 
That is an amazing way of putting it, and I hadn't thought about it like that. You, you are an inspiration, Joe. Um, Thank you. Uh, and in, in so many ways, I mean, I was just reading uh, on, on your site as well. I, I, we won't get into it now. I hope you'll come back uh, at some point and talk about this as well. But the um, the release you guys put out about uh, banning Congress from trading stocks as well, we got to talk about that because there's, there's, there are some ex- extraordinarily heinous things going on right now. I mean, it's 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 you know, the fall of the Roman Empire, that kind of um, largesse you're seeing right now um, here on, on, on Capitol Hill. And I live, you know, maybe 20 seconds away from, from the Capitol building. So believe me, can't nobody tell me about January the 6th, right? That was going on <laughs> on my doorstep. Um, so, you know, I hope you'll come back and, and we can talk about some of these other things as well. One last thing I wanted to ask you your, your, your just thoughts on. I was, in a, I was in an Uber the other day and, you know, that song... Um, uh, John Lennon, uh, the uh, Happy Christmas War is Over song. You hear that every year. Yeah. You know, so this yeah. is Christmas, all this. And it occurred to me that it was about 100 days since the um, since the um, official drawdown date of the troops in Afghanistan. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, th- there's a major, you know, the world superpower um, ended a war. Whether, you know, whether or not you think it was won or lost or whatever, like whoever is looking at this, you would have thought that that like 100 day mark, we're getting into the Christmas period, you'd think that there would be some kind of um, honoring of that. Somebody might give a speech about it. Somebody might, you know, put a, put out a press release. And then I realized, wow, they just really don't want to because they don't want people to remember the imagery. It was just 100 days ago of how poorly that whole thing was executed and you just think that is that is genuinely a, a very weird thing that war has come to end and we're not celebrating peace this Christmas. Isn't that strange? Yeah, it, it's bizarre. And I mean, it's, it's 20 years of conflict, you know, close to 3,000 lives lost of American servicemen, more contractors, and then, you know, who, who knows how many Afghans. And we can't even talk about it because, like you said, the Biden doesn't want to talk about that. The, the regime, the media, they don't want to talk about that. You know, meanwhile, we're supposed to go last weekend and be very happy that the Army and Navy are playing some football game and all the generals get to come and, and they get to watch this football game, you know, in the Nike uniforms um, like we have something to celebrate. And that's where a lot of my, my rage kind of kicked in. And I'm like, no, we should be talking about what happened in Afghanistan. There should be an Afghan war commission right now where the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs out there and the coin get tossed to see you get to do the kickoff like that guy should be answering really pointed questions about why we we lost 13 service members on our way out why we flew over a hundred thousand unvetted afghans into the heartland of america why we conducted a blind drone strike that killed the wrong family you know and then work backwards from there how many lies the brass tell over the last 20 years i mean we had the afghan papers come out from the washington post like why aren't we talking about this? I mean, it, it, like you said, it's, it's breathtaking that we can't at least celebrate or have some sort of a tribute because, you know, thank God there's no American service members engaged in combat. But you can't talk about that for too long because there's Americans stranded in Afghanistan because we abandoned them. So it's it, it's just on every level, the more you look at what what this what the Biden regime and the left is doing and, the, and you know, the globalist project, what they're doing. It has to just enrage you. I mean, it, and it has to inspire action because if it doesn't, I mean, again, we're we're on the cusp of, of losing the country. So it's just it's just disgraceful. 
Well, the good news is people like you are fighting. The good news is hopefully people like you will, well, I mean, I'm sorry about this uh, to say it this way, but you'll be here in Washington, D.C. So, you know, it's <laughs> not much to look yeah. forward to, but, um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly try and try and, you know, make you feel at home when, when you get here. Tell us a little bit about where people can go to support you, find out more about your campaign. And of course, you are, we haven't even mentioned it, you are the Trump endorsed candidate in that race now. Yep, that's right. Yeah, honored to receive President Trump's endorsement. Um, that was obviously huge. Had a little bit of a relationship with with Trump and uh, the. When I announced, I got to meet him real quickly at Mar-a-Lago, and he was like, "Joe, I want to because I was going to hire you to come work." He's like, "But I got to see that you can stand alone as a candidate. You got to show me fundraising, polling, and volunteers." And I was like, "Okay, that's let's let's get off to the races and, and get going." And we did. We enlisted over uh, almost four hundred volunteers. We've done well over a hundred in-person events, town halls raised in, in small donations. I'm not getting any PAC money because I'm going after an incumbent Republican. So there's like no PACs out there that even want to tempt me with any of that dirty money because I'm doing the taboo thing. So we've raised a, almost a million and a half uh, so far just on individual contributions from real Americans. Um, and that, that was uh, enough for the president. We got some good polling in too from Trafalgar that put me up, uh, up, put me significantly in the lead. And so after that, President Trump went ahead and, and uh, honored me with his endorsement in September. So a uh, good place to find me is JoeKittForCongress.com. That's kind of the touch point. You can make a donation there. You can find links to all the different social medias we're on. We're on everything. We're on, uh, we're on Gitter. We're on Twitter and all that. Uh, but JoeKittForCongress.com. The, uh, the small donations really help. So if people can give even just like $10, $15, that's actually how we're just we're punching through this corporate establishment. Cause I, and, and this is another thing that I think President Trump you know, set the mold for that you do. You know, it's packed money. You can get individual contributions. And then people like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene have taken it to the next level by just having Americans support them directly. So JoeKinForCongress.com, people can support me directly and we can take out this establishment. Joe, thank you once again for joining us here um, on, a, on a Saturday, no, no less as well. So Joe Kent, uh, we will push our audience that, that way and um, it, all the things will be in the description of this, uh, of this podcast. I will say this, $15, $20, that's all well and good. Dig deep, ladies and gentlemen. This is, uh, this is our guy. Joe, thank you once again. Thank you very much, Raheem. I really appreciate it. Cheers. What an amazing, um, what amazing story! What an amazing candidate! And uh, you know, we don't uh, we don't do endorsements over at the National Pulse. Um, I don't think I'm allowed to <laughs> as a foreign national. Um, but I uh, let me let me put it in the uh, in the parlance of um, what was the 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 people who were the apes, right? The apes who were doing all the uh, GameStop stocks. I like the stock. I like the stock, right? I like I like Joe. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I'm incredibly appreciative of your time listening to this show. Um, obviously, incredibly appreciative for Joe's time as well. So make it worth his while. Go to JoeKentForCongress.com. Read about him. Share his stuff. I want to thank all of the people who go over and support our work at FundRealNews.com. Um, just like Joe and that campaign, by the way. We are entirely people-funded. There's no pack money. There's no corporate money. There's no billionaires behind the national pulse it's all you and it all starts at fundrealnews.com by the way if you know this but you can also give the gift of real news this christmas if you go to giftrealnews.com you'll actually be taken to a site where you can gift a national pulse subscription to your friends family members colleagues political enemies and adversaries that'll really wind them up 
Uh, but I want to say thanks to the latest members, John, Anne, Marty, Roy, Catherine, Mary, Keith, Russ, Pamela, Alex, Christine, Lisa, Ron, Carol, Brandon, John, John, Fred, Renda, Andrew. Let's go. We'll keep going. Jonathan, Eugene, Mona, Bonnie, Scott, Mark, Kelly, Andrew, Corinne. Oh, I'm going to get this one wrong. Anthopney. Anthopney? Scott, David, Vince, John, Serena, Daniel, Walter, Wayne, Nadine, Sarah, Clyde, Jonathan, Matthew, Linda, Amy, Sharon, Suzanne, Liz, Linda, Cynthia, Michelle, Dan, Kathy, Weatherford. What a great name. Gary, Richard, Sandra, Maria, Ed, Alexander. The list goes on and on. We're so grateful. Make sure you share this, like it, leave a review. Give us five stars and I'll see you again next time.